This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. It's Monday evening and it's a beautiful blue sky here in Westminster. But a row is brewing over the Northern Ireland Protocol. The government today published uh, its legislation on the matter and also its legal justification. The EU has responded by implying that it's going to restart legal proceedings against the UK government. Uh, the Irish have spoken about this action taking relations to a new low. Katie... What's your sense of things? How quickly could we be heading for a row? Or is this going to be like one of these kind of slightly tantric UK-EU rows and then it goes on for ages before um, reaching a climax? James, I never knew I'd say the word tantric on coffeehouse shots, but I have to say, um, if we're looking at where this bit is going, I do think it might be the more apt description in the sense that it does feel as though we're going in for a long battle. And I think it's been, what's been quite striking to me is if you look, think about the internal market bill, which I think was 2020, you had a situation where Brandon Lewis stood up in the chamber and he said it did break international law in a limited way. And this time around, the government is at pains to say it does not break international law. Uh, We understand the Attorney General has given advice to the fact that it is uh, actually in keeping with law because of the Good Friday Agreement. And if you look at Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary's interviews over the weekend, all again stressing this point. So in many ways, it seems that the government is trying to play down at the level of drama in the bill. You had Boris Johnson today suggesting it's very minor changes. But I think if we're being realistic, if anything, it suggests the bill changes more than they're letting on. And I think the bill and the changes proposed do have the potential to cause a huge row between the EU and the UK. The question is, how far does it go? And currently we're at a point where it may well go to the Commons for votes. There's some talk in parliament that it could clear the commons by the end of july but doesn't then go to the lords because there's already discussions about holding it before the dp agree to certain things and then were it to go to the lords i think there's quite um a solid opinion no matter who you speak to that would face mass opposition there and that can make it very tricky what do you think about that stage so i think the interesting thing is that i think this bill has very little chance in the house of lords unless and it might not even have much of a chance even with this unless you can say with this bill we are managing to revive power sharing in northern ireland because i I, and i think that you know there is talk that some people thought that this bill wouldn't even be introduced for second reading after being published until the dup had made some moves in terms of restoring power sharing but it now, you know, the Times is reporting this morning, but, you know, the bill won't go to the Lords unless power sharing is, is, is clearly being revived in, in Northern Ireland. And so I think that, that is the problem. I also think that the, the international law aspect of this bill is going to be particularly important 
to to the Lords, more so than Tory backbenchers in the Commons. And here I think there's an interesting question. That I, I've just been um, reading the government's summary of its of its legal position, and it, and it, it invokes this thing called the doctrine of necessity, which says that you know a state is allowed to uh, essentially not fulfil an international obligation if it, is, if it is protecting an essential interest and if it has not contributed to this situation of necessity. Now, I think there are going to be two challenges to this. The first is obvious, is, well, hang on a second, you signed this protocol, so you have contributed to the situation. The second will be, why are you justified invoking this doctrine of necessity when you haven't used the safety valve mechanism in the protocol itself, which is triggering Article 16? And indeed, uh, there are times when you're reading the summary of a government's legal advice when it seems to be a more compelling case for triggering Article 16 than it does for the unilateral legislation. I also think that you see... So why aren't they triggering Article 16? I think the reason they are not triggering Article 16 is, um, and this is slightly kind of all by railway timetable stuff, which is, I mean, the reason they're not doing that is that the EU months ago, when there was lots of talk, when David Frost was still doing this job, of the UK triggering Article 16, the UK lined up all member states behind various a common position on how it would respond to the UK triggering Article 16. And I think the UK doesn't want to kind of run into that buzzsaw, so it wants to do something differently. Also, all Article 16 does, which was the argument against it made by uh, various people, is all Article 16 does is start another negotiation. And I mean, there are some people, and it goes to arbitration, and there are some people in the government who worry that you trigger Article 16, you go through a long period of arbitration, and you end up no further forward. And and I think you also see part of the problem here, which is the EU statements today, they said, yes, they would would provide more details. Amidst all the kind of language of disappointment in the UK, willingness to restart legal proceedings, they also said they would set out more fully their view of a kind of flexible implementation of the protocol. But they're also clear that the text of the protocol is not going to change. I think what is one of the things that has become clearer in the UK government position recently is that those in the UK government who argue that it is the text of the protocol itself, not just the way it is being implemented that is the problem, currently have the upper hand. So James, if we're looking... In terms of the internal UK government negotiation. So James, if we're looking ahead, where does the clash come? I mean, as we touched on, the EU is already starting to retaliate, uh, saying they will respond in kind. But if this doesn't actually clear parliament if it doesn't become law will that mean that uh, we don't actually see a full retaliation is it only when it reaches that point that we'll really potentially see something like a trade war so uh, i would be surprised if you saw a trade war before the uk actually does what this bill says it would allow the uk to do and it's worth noting that the bill even once the bill becomes law, the UK doesn't automatically do the things in the bill. It's still ministers still have to make a decision. It gives ministers the power to do that. So, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I think this is going to go on for so long. I think what you'll see from the EU is, forget joining Horizon, they've already been quite clear about that. I mean, they'll restart the legal actions over infringement. And I, I think there is, though, when you talk to people on the EU side, I think there is now also a, a body of opinion in Brussels, which is, you know, wait this out, play this long. You don't know what's going to happen in British politics in the next 12 months. And you don't want to serve up, you know, even if you were prepared to concessions, make concessions, you hear people say, why would you want to make these concessions now when British politics is clearly entering back into one of its unpredictable periods? And in a year's time, you know, you could have a different prime minister. 
And James, in terms of the Tory party dynamics, who do you think wins from the bill that has been uh, announced and presented today in the sense that there was lots of talk about the inner wranglings of government last week. You had a situation where Liz Truss was reported to be siding with the ERG, some members of the European Research Group of Tory Brexiteers. And then you had figures such as Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove actually urging caution in response to that. And no one seemed to be quite sure where the Prime Minister was in all this. Do you think the ERG should be quite happy with where things are at? I think the ERG are not sure whether they should be happy or not. Uh, They have reconvened their kind of star chamber of of Eurosceptic lawyers to look through it to see whether whether they are going to be satisfied with it or not. And I think that's one of the problems for Boris Johnson is that the argument that was made to lots of people in the Tory party about the case for this bill was that this bill was essentially a negotiating device. That, you know, that the EU were refusing, and Liz Truss was again saying in all her statements today that her preference would still be for a negotiated solution. The argument went the EU were not being prepared to negotiate. So you needed to, to kind of put this bill on the table to get the EU to come to the table. And, but obviously, in any negotiation, you're not going to get everything that is in this bill. And I think one of the problems for Boris Johnson is it is politically now more difficult for him having publish this bill to then chuck out various bits of it in a negotiation with the EU. Which I, Now, I, I'm sceptical that this negotiation with the EU is going to happen for all the reasons we outlined. But I mean, that's one of the difficulties in terms of his relationship with the ERG now, which is, which is he's, he's held to a, to a kind of tighter position. I also thought that you can tell that he is slightly cavilling at that, because I thought it was quite telling that in that Wednesday cabinet meeting, I, I think to the surprise of, 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 of people present, he started off by saying, well, actually, he wasn't, he wasn't quite happy with where the bill had headed and some things, and that he was not a sovereignty purist. And so, but, but I think there is a problem, which is, I think if you talk to admirers of this trusting government, they would say to you, she's in this very odd position, because one minute number 10 seemed to be implying, you know, throw the kitchen sink at it, make sure that it's comprehensive. The next moment, it appears to be a slightly different tack. And so I think the danger for the UK government is it looks like it is back to kind of internal negotiations, which never strengthens you in the external negotiation. I had one member of government say to me that they believe this bill is going to be a proxy on Boris Johnson's leadership in the sense that the One Nation group are likely to move against it and there'll be a sense in number 10 that most on the right should back him through it. Do you think if it were a proxy that's going to work in Boris Johnson's favour? I think it will not be a proxy on Boris Johnson's leadership for, for, for a slightly subtle reason, which is, look at the fact that, I mean, I, he hasn't opined on, on the bill tonight, but look at the fact that Jeremy Hunt has, in, has said that, you know, he's inclined for changes to the protocol. Tom Tugendhat is chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, another likely contender, as of now, as of recording this podcast at um, 7.40, hasn't come out and, and, and attacked the bill. I think, the, I think there is a feeling that, that because there might, there, is, you know, there might be a Tory leadership contest at some point, I think mean, people who want to run in that will be reluctant to publicly attack the bill, so which will fear. stop this from becoming a proxy, if you see what I mean. Because actually those who we might think are the most likely to attack it are those who fear the next Tory leadership contest becoming a Remain versus Leave. Exactly. I think mean, there is also a worry that people can see that look how, and it's obviously a separate issue, but people look at how number 10 jumped on Tobias Elwood suggesting that you know maybe the UK should re- think about rejoining the single market to say that, that all the all the people trying to remove him were, it was all a kind of Remainer plot. I, I think that even some 
Tory MPs who, who want Boris Johnson gone and feel squeamish about this legislation don't want to make this the fight. And I mean, there is a kind of slight view, but, you know, why don't we leave this to the House of Lords? Thank you, James, and thank you for listening. The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July.